This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, you are strong in our weakness. We come together today, we long for you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, um, most of you don't know this about me. It's not something I'm super proud of. I don't talk about it a lot, but um, I played middle school basketball. And uh, I was terrible, and, uh, but I did win an award for spirit. Um, I made up what I lacked in athletic ability with great enthusiasm. And I'll tell you, um, I want to tell a story about the grossest thing I ever saw playing middle school basketball, which was, I wasn't paying attention to the game. I was probably talking or whatever. Um, and then I, I turned around and a teammate of mine, um, had injured herself playing and her, part of her shoulder, sorry for you who are queasy, had come out of socket. So her arm was just hanging pretty ineffectively. She couldn't play. She was crying. So the team doctor came out, laid her on this table, uh, and basically popped her joint back into socket. They put her in a sling. I don't think she played the rest of the game, and I think she had to have surgery. She's okay now. She, she like, probably has some high-paying job. Everything worked out great. But, um, but uh, why am I telling you this terrible story? Because the term here in, that we see in this passage in Galatians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you, her spirituals, should restore him in a, spiritual, in a spirit of gentleness. This term, to restore, in Greek, is akin, it's similar word, to setting into joint. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's like taking a dislocated bone, a dislocated joint, and setting it back into place. My friend, what I was watching, was um, horrible, but she was being restored. I love this image because to be out of joint diminishes us, and sin diminishes us. It makes it so that we can't play as we are intended to. It makes us so that we can't function as we're intended to. Francis Spufford, in his book Unapologetic, talks about how sin now has come to be used as a brand name for things like rich, good ice cream. And he says, high-end chocolates and truffles and lingerie and cocktails. So that from this sort of vague cultural idea of sin comes the understanding of sin as indulgence or what he calls enjoyable naughtiness, something that we really like but aren't supposed to do for reasons we're not quite sure of. But that's not what sin is. Sin isn't some kind of interesting, yummy, sexy thing that God is trying to keep you from enjoying. Sin is waste. 
Sin is like a moth that eats away parts of us, diminishes human beauty. It makes us boring and empty and hollowed out. It makes us lonely and sad eventually. And it's the propensity to break stuff that we all have, to injure ourselves and others and relationships. It's our desire to dominate and rule the world, to have our own way and our own will to power, even at the cost of others. And the whole book of Galatians, and this is the very end of Galatians that we're looking at today, is the whole book is Paul describing what a new creation community looks like. So what does a new creation community look like? I want to outline just three things in this passage that mark the church as a new creation community. And the first is a new creation community takes sin seriously. And I want you to notice that in this passage we take sin in others seriously and we take sin in ourselves seriously. The scripture says that if someone is in sin, we should, we must set, seek to set them into joint again. We have to confront people on their sin. It is not loving to leave people in sin. To ignore sin in each other is not loving. But when we are seeking to restore to correct, to call people on their sin, we are not seeking to break them. We're not trying to break bones, spiritually speaking. And if the doctor would have mishandled my friend that day, he could have caused more damage. He, we have to know, we have to learn to care for people well. This requires telling each other hard truths about ourselves, but in ways that calls others to restoration and to wholeness, a way that gives them a way to grow, a way out that does not break them, but teaches the way to restoration. Matthew Henry says of this passage that to restore someone is to bring them to themselves by convincing them of their sin and error, persuading them to return to their duty, comforting them in a sense of pardoning mercy thereupon, and having thus recovered them, confirming our love for them. He goes on, we ought to deal very tenderly with those who are overtaken in sin because we, none of us, know that it may sometime or other be our own case. We may be the ones that are called on our own sin. But recall that the scriptures say that if anyone is caught in transgression, if anyone is caught in known sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness and, then it says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Our culture has two ways of dealing with sin that I have observed. One, it says, there is no sin. Sin's not that bad. God's mellow. It's cool. You're cool. I'm cool. Sin's not going to kill you. It's not going to diminish you. We all have problems. We all have issues. And in our culture at this moment, affirmation and approval has been completely conflated with love. So if you don't affirm my life choices, my identity, my beliefs, my actions, my needs, my experience, then you don't love me. 
And biblically, this just is not true. That is not what a new creation community looks like. This is a way we are different than the culture. We tell each other the truth about our sin because we love each other and sin destroys us. With my teammate who needed her shoulder back and joint, it hurt to put her shoulder back and joint. It was painful to be restored, but it was a it was a better outcome than allowing her to live life without the use of her arm, right? It was better than if the team doctor would have said, let's just accept your arm as it is now, right? She needed to walk through the pain of restoration. Being confronted about our sin, and I know this because I've experienced this, it hurts. But if done in love, and that's a really important caveat, if done in love, it restores us. It's the beginning of healing. So the other way to deal with sin in our culture isn't to say there is no sin or sin's not bad, but to say sin is bad, but those are the bad people out there, and we are the good. I am the good. They are the sinners. I am not, or we are not, or my group is not. But Paul counters this too. He says, You who are spiritual, keep watch on yourselves because you too are prone to wander from God. You who are spiritual, don't get a pass on this. You too are prone to sin, to selfishness, to self-deceit. The most dangerous place you can be as a Christian is to think that you are righteous in and of yourself, that you are better than those others. This is why Paul says, if you think you are something, beware New creation communities confront others on their sin, but we do so knowing that we could be the ones confronted tomorrow. And this kind of humility is largely absent from the way we talk to each other as a culture, at least on the internet, but in real life as well. But it is desperately, desperately needed. The tendency in our culture is to say that we are good We don't need a savior, or maybe we need a savior, but not as much as those people, right? They're the problem. And I don't know who your those people are. It could be another political party, another class of people, another race. But we can say the problem is the liberals, or the problem is the conservatives, or the problem is white men, or the problem is immigrants or the problem is Trump supporters, or the problem is Bernie supporters. They are the unrighteous ones, and we are the righteous ones. But it's not true. We demonize other groups of people to make ourselves seem more righteous, to say they're the problem. But Scripture says all of us are prone to sin. G.K. Chesterton, I think I've told you this before, and I don't remember, and I'm sorry. I hope you don't remember whether or not I've told you either. But um, famously, a newspaper um, sent out this flyer when when Chesterton was alive to famous authors and um, public faces, and they asked them to respond with an op-ed to this question, what's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton famously responded simply, Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. 
You need God's grace as much as the person in your life who you think is most misguided, most evil, and the person you think is most righteous and holy and put together and gifted with a very clean house and a very well-kept yard, they need God's grace and forgiveness as much as you do. And I can't spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to point out one weird contradiction in this passage, just because it's striking. It's a paradox more than a contradiction, but verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then we turn around in verse 5 and says, for each will have to bear his own load. This seems contradictory. There's a paradox that we are carrying here, that when we carry each other, when someone is in unrepentant sin, we all feel that. We are diminished, all of us, by that. I need you as my community to repent and to follow Jesus as hard as you can in order for me to know and follow Jesus as I am meant to. We need each other in this. And yet, Paul says to test our own works and to bear our own burdens. This is a call against self-deceit and self-deception, tricking ourselves into thinking that we're better than we are, to test ourselves, to look honestly at ourselves. The holiest people that I know don't think they're very holy because they know themselves well. We can't believe our own hype. We have to test our own work. And in some sense, each of us has to do our own believing and our own repenting, to know ourselves, to put our whole hope in Jesus. Others cannot do this for you. We need to take our own efforts to seek God seriously. And we need to take our sin, which is daily and which is profound for all of us, we need to take that seriously. But this brings us to the second mark of a new creation community. We take sin seriously, but the second mark of a new creation community is we take goodness seriously. In some sense, we take it more seriously than sin. That um, this is the true thing. Goodness is the real thing. This true reality, sin is like darkness or emptiness. It's the absence of something, right? It's the absence of life. It's the absence of fullness. We notice sin in our lives and others, not by staring at sin or looking for sin, but at looking to goodness, by gazing on goodness. When anything is counterfeited, whether it's money or books or designer handbags, you can't tell by looking at the counterfeit, especially if it's a really good counterfeit. You have to know and study and look at the real thing, and then the counterfeit will be obvious. We have seen, us as Christians, we have seen the goodness of God in fullness, in the person of Jesus. And he, not sin, is the ultimate preoccupation of the church. He is who we're preoccupied with. And so we show forth this goodness, the goodness of Jesus in our own lives. And there's a few ways in particular that we take goodness seriously in our lives, and it's, um, they're outlined in this passage. If um, Paul says first, we intentionally take up the practice of doing good to others, especially those in the household of faith. 
And honestly, I think you all do this pretty well here at Ascension. I have experienced this from you. But this is something we can grow in together. We can take care of each other in intentional ways as a family. Second, he says, intentionally take up the practice of giving. According to N.T. Wright, um, this, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And then following that, all this about sowing and reaping is a way for Paul to bring up money without ever mentioning his money, the word, but that his listeners would, uh, his readers, as this is being read to the assembly, would know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about church giving and supporting financially the work of the church. We take goodness seriously by giving our money away. This is an essential and very normal part of the Christian life because how we use our money shapes every part of our lives and our affections and our passions. And I know that talking about money can be uncomfortable, but we have to do it if we want to take goodness seriously. And lastly, we intentionally, to take goodness seriously, we intentionally take up practices of persistence and endurance. Persistence and endurance. The Christian life is hard. I don't want to pretend otherwise. It is hard. It will require us to die to what we think we're owed sometimes. It will require us to give up short-term happiness for something richer but harder to find in ways. It will require us to mortify our flesh, which is as painful as it sounds, and goodness isn't something that happens quickly. There is no drive-through fast food goodness. It is a long obedience in the same direction. This talk of sowing and reaping here is about money, but it's expanded here to all of the Christian life. Our behavior, Paul says, is like farming. And I don't know if you all have met farmers, but farming is really hard. It requires discipline and work. It requires waiting Jonathan and I lived with a farmer for several years, and he would get up really early before us and sometimes come home very late after us. Farming is difficult work. And it requires lots and lots of endurance. And growth in farming, when things grow, it's a mystery. And it often has things to do, it, it has more to do with things that are way outside the farmer's control, like heat and rain. The farmer doesn't make things grow. But... He or she has to sow good seed. That's their job. And behavior is the same way. We change slowly and only with waiting and endurance. In our passage, it says God is not mocked. And that doesn't mean that God will take some kind of arbitrary vengeance on those who resist him. But if you sow barley, barley will come up. If you sow cabbage, cabbage will come up. This is simply reality. This is the way the world works. And N.T. Wright says, God has likewise decreed that those who sow behavior which relates to the flesh will reap the appropriate result, which is ultimately death, and that those who sow to the Spirit will reap eternal life, the life of the new age that is already broken in in Christ and will one day be complete. So if you sow anger, you will reap death. If you sow gossip over a lifetime, you will reap death. And I hope this makes us all uncomfortable we're all sowing stuff, right? 
This is the way of things. But I don't want you to despair over your sin because this brings us to the third mark of a new creation community. The third mark is that we take sin seriously, we take goodness seriously, but that we take Jesus more seriously than either one of those. This final part of Galatians, starting probably around verse 11, um, somewhere around there, Paul takes the pen. And this is a normal practice at the time. Um, it's kind of how uh, now we sometimes type letters to one another, and then at the end of a typed letter, you might sign it and include some kind of personal note or heartfelt note at the end. This... Um, this is kind of how this worked. This was common at the time. Paul was likely dictating this letter of Galatians to a scribe, and a scribe was copying it down. And then at the very end, Paul takes the pen, and he starts writing this personal note to the community from his own hand. That's why, by the way, he says, I know my handwriting is terrible. Uh, that's what he's saying there, which does not necessarily mean that illegible handwriting is a sign of holiness, regardless of what my husband might say. Um, but it's where Paul begins um, his most heartfelt sort of words. And what is the most heartfelt things that Paul can say? He's, he starts and says, boast in Jesus. He says, far be it to me from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We cannot boast in Jesus simply out of duty. What we boast of is what we are naturally proud of. It kind of bubbles out of us. I don't boast in my kids because I think I'm supposed to, but because I'm genuinely taken by them. I genuinely think they're the coolest kids I've ever met. And we can take that up later and fight over your kids, but I love them and I know them, so it's natural for me to boast. In the same way, we will only boast about Jesus if we have fallen for him, if we know him and our imagination has been captured by who he is and how amazing he is and how beautiful he is. We have to know ourselves of sinners who are, have been transformed and are being transformed by Christ. And in the end, our love for Jesus, our boasting of Jesus, will only be as great as what we believe we are saved from. If you think salvation is simply a ticket to heaven, a way to get out of hell free, it will be hard to boast in Jesus. But if you know that you are a great sinner who's been destroyed by sin, who's been diminished by sin, that all your joints were out of joint, sometimes are out of joint, and if you know him to be the restorer, the rescuer, the healer, who is better than anything else, then you will naturally boast of him. You won't be able to stop yourself. And lastly, I just want you to see, in Paul's own hands, Galatians begins and ends with grace. And I want to close with this final quote from N.T. Wright. He says, the final lines of this letter are a benediction. They call for grace. And they're a benediction not only on the Galatians, but on all of us who read these words. That's us today. It is all of grace from start to finish. 
It is all of grace from start to finish. The grace of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, God in the Messiah, took the initiative in the plan of salvation. Grace reaches out and embraces the whole world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.